Often we speak about the lost and we or to seek them and we should and we'll integrate that. But um, I was just talking to Mario. Um, in two more years, it'll be 40 years that I've been in ministry full time. Um, I've, no, but I've seen a lot of people come and go. Um, if I went around the room right now and and I started saying, you know, those of you who have been born again this last year, um, there'd be a great number. And then if I went down from one, two, three, four, and I kept going all the way down, as I'm going forward in the years, the numbers would diminish. And when I would get down to the last one, say, 20, 30 years, maybe one or two, in 20 or 30 years, all those that stood up at one year, there'll be two left. Remember, three and a half million came out of the Exodus. Only two entered into the promised land over the age of 20. I used to believe that the wilderness journey was the exception. I believe it's the rule now. And um, I think there's a lot of false teaching going on that gives false hope and false assurance. So I want to speak to you about that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you for your word, Lord, that we can go to it and be certain of what it says. Help us to read and study and to examine like good Bereans. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a Bible. Why don't you turn to James chapter 5, please. James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20. And James ends his letter to these Hebrew Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire who were being influenced by the secular culture as well as affected by the persecution that was coming upon them. And so James at this point addresses the mutual responsibility of believers to seek to restore wayward believers from the saving truth, which is characterized by three things here. Let me read 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a way to finish this letter. The mutual responsibility of believers to seek to restore wayward believers from the saving truth is characterized by the three following things. First, we have the possibility of a believer walking away, the first part of 19. Second, you have the responsibility of a believer to seek sheep that stray, the end of 19. And then you have the perceptibility of the believers having turned a believer back to the way. We're to be clear on what we do when we do that. So let's begin here with the possibility of a believer walking away. Um, Notice James declares he was addressing the same people, um, the Christians. He calls them brethren. Um, the identity can't be missed. It's uh, those born from the same womb, the same family. It's through the new birth of Jesus Christ. Eighteen times it appears. This is the last time it appears in the letter here. And remember, these are individual Christians um, who were Hebrew Christians. He addresses them in the opening verse, the twelve tribes of Israel scattered abroad. So... Later on, the church moved on. There were a lot more Gentiles than Jews. But at first, it was the Jews, Hebrews, who became Christians. 
These were the first to be scattered. James is believed to be one of the first epistles, and he's writing to them. The persecution, the culture, sucking them in. And they had come out of Judaism and accepted Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And he warns them and he rebukes them not to favor the rich over the poor or different things like that. Now, notice James declared, no believer is excluded from the potential of erring. Listen to his words. If anyone among you wonders from the truth, if anyone among you is all-inclusive, he's talking to Christians. The definite pronoun is singular. Verse 13, 14, and 19. A believer who repented from sin, accepting Jesus Christ, is addressing him, erring from the truth. The word among you indicates the relationship between uh, them and Christ. In Christ is what makes us one. We have all kinds of differences in the auditorium. But we're united in Christ. All the other things don't matter. Because in Christ means that you believe everything in the Bible and I believe everything in the Bible. That's our common ground. That means that he's addressing the people of the church that's scattered there. And that this includes... Male, female, young, old, married, single, deacon, elders, bishops, pastors, doesn't matter. If anyone, no one's excluded from this. Notice the warning regards a great danger to the brethren who wonders. The word wonder there means to cause astray. To lead astray from apple, which means away and out of the right path to roam about. In fact, um, we get our word for planets wandering off course from this Greek word. Planets are fixed. And when they're off course, they wander from where they should be. In the tense in the Greek, a subjective error is passive. The error indicates that it's a reality of the strain and roaming. It's not a hypothetical situation. This is not that it can't happen. It's a reality. And the passive indicative means straight in the middle voice. That means he is the one doing that. He's responsible. Whenever the middle voice in the Greek, that means that person does it. Either strays or makes a decision, whatever it is. No one else is responsible. So again, it is not hypothetical or anything else. The word uh, is used 39 times in the New Testament. Um, It's very key. It speaks about being deceived, about deceiving, about moving away from the truth in various ways. Now, the danger is due to the proximity, notice, from the truth they strayed or roamed away from. The word truth is, is what's at stake here. Aletheia refers to truth of any matter being considered. The truth here, the context, is the word of God. God's word, listen to me. It's a dirty word today in the church. It's objective truth. It can be understood. It's absolute. It never changes. Right is always right. Wrong is always wrong. It's not relative like today's culture and much of the emergent church's teaching. The emergent church says you cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible. What? Why am I commanded to study? Why am I commanded to examine? Why am I commanded to make judgment? Why am I commanded to know that he's coming to judge if there's no objective truth? It's an insult. Why am I told to be a good Berean? The objective truth is unchanging. 
It's opposed to subjective reasoning and truth of today, relativism. James uses the word two other times in James 1.18 for the gospel, the word of truth that made us born again. And then in 3.15, for not boasting against the truth of the gospel. It's always objective truth. That which can clearly be understood and it's unchanging. Now, this does not identify one who is not born again. Otherwise, they would not know the truth or be able to stray from the truth. If you don't know the truth, if you haven't embraced the truth, how can you stray or fall away from the truth? After this is over, you're going to eat some food and then you're going to go to your car. At that point, I can say, he left the auditorium. He left the gym. If you were never in the auditorium, you can never leave the auditorium. Simple. You don't need to be a theologian. You just need to use your brain. There are those who deny the possibility of a believer turning away from the truth after being born again. Yet James here cannot be any clearer that this is a believer. James definitely identifies believers sick in chapter 5 verse 14 who need prayer and oil put on for healing. James has identified believers sick and in sin in chapter 5 verse 15 out of fellowship with God in need of repentance and prayer. And James now identifies believers that might wander from the truth to sin and death. He says, brothers, are you willing to interpret brothers as non-believers? Let's get serious here. This is not one who falls into sin, as any of us can. And then we need to confess and abandon the sin. This is not backsliding. This is not one who is in any particular doctrinal error. Though wandering from the truth is pretty serious doctrinal error. (laughs) This is one who has deviated, gone astray, turning, departing, rebelling being in a position of apostasy from the gospel, Christ and the living truth. As Hebrews, what would they do? They would be tempted to go back to the law, to sacrifices, to the synagogue, denying Jesus Christ. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. To the Hebrews, (laughs) who had accepted Christ and then denied Him and went back to sacrifice. James has been warning them about this throughout the epistle. In 118, he warned them about yielding to sin nature that brings forth death, disrupting their fellowship with God. In 121 and 22, he exhorted them to lay aside all filthiness and wickedness, receiving the meekness, the implanted word, to save their soul. The context is Christians. He warned them of believing in faith without works is Unbiblical in chapter 2, 14 through 16. He warned them about living out life depending on the wisdom of the world instead of God in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. In fact, he called them adulteresses and friends of the world, making themselves enemies of God in James 4, 4. James hardcore. <laughs> he deals with reality. He's not playing... 
churchianity. He warned the rich about their cruel and unjust conduct towards the poor, for they would have to give an account to God in James 5, 1 through 8. People say, well, he's talking about non-believers. He's addressing Christians. He warned them now about wandering and walking away from the truth of the gospel. I think this is one of the greatest truths that's lacking in the church today. There's no warning today. Everybody wants to feel good. Everybody wants to be loving. I want to be loving. I want to feel good, but not at the expense of truth. You see, if someone loves you, if your parents love you, they're going to warn you. And right now you're young and you think they want to make your life miserable, but one day you're going to be a parent of the Lord Terry's and you're going to warn your kids because you're going to love them. Why do we have such a difficult time to believe that a person having come to the light, can go back into darkness. Listen, the miracle is going from darkness to light. Going from light to darkness is not a miracle. It's natural. No person having come to Christ strays away by chance, accident, or unconsciously. The individual knowing truth chooses to ignore, disobey, or turn from that truth. The individual is responsible for their decision. They can't blame anybody else. We like to blame people. It's a very dangerous position. Again, these are Christian Hebrews. They're turning back to law, sacrifice, temple, denying Christ. This applies in principle to any form of religion that you come out of. Once you come to Christ, if you then deny Christ and go back to your religion, it's the same thing. In fact, when Hebrews was written, listen to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good works of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, that phrase, if they fall away, in the Greek, is in the perfect tense. It literally means having fallen away. Not if. To renew them again to repentance. Since they have crucified again themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to open shame. Who alone can put Christ to shame again? Only one who has taken Him down from the cross. You put Him up again. Non-believers are doing that all the time. Only the believer can do it again, right? Simple. Paul names people that fit into this category. In this case, he names Hymenius, Alexander, who made shipwreck of the faith in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. People say, well, you know, they were non-believers. Really? So you're going to blame Paul of, um, of, um, of using non-believers for ministry for years? Which way do you want it? And by the way, he turned them over to Satan. That they learn not to blaspheme. You don't turn non-believers over to Satan. They already belong to him. You turn Christians who turn away from Christ over to Satan. That the destruction of their flesh, they might repent and turn back to him. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. That young man was sleeping with his stepmother. He repented. They 
let him back in in 2 Corinthians. But he's another application. Paul says, all those in Asia have turned away from me, Phygelus and Hermogenes in 2 Timothy 1.15. Once again, people say, well, they were non-believers. Really? He's using them in ministry. They were probably elders at Ephesus. You can't have it both ways. Hymenius, Philetus, they strayed concerning the truth. And it says, in saying that the resurrection was already passed, and they overthrew the faith of some. The some are believers. And they also. You can't say they were non-believers and they overthrew the faith of some religious people. You can't, you can't say that. It's very clear in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. He calls them by name. Demons love this present world, 2 Corinthians 4, 10. He abandoned Paul. Type in the name Demas in your Bible computer. His name will come up. Paul used him tremendously. Great man. He calls him out by name. What was Paul doing? Because he hated these guys? No, he's warning the church. Because people knew them in the church. And they had turned from Christ. And so the possibility of a believer walking away is not hypothetical. It's a reality. Now notice in 19, at the end there, the responsibility of a believer is to seek the sheep that stray. So, in other words, knowing that the potential is there, then we are to have a heart for those who deceive themselves or are deceived or allow themselves to be deceived, right? We're not to say, ah, forget that sucker, let him go. That's what we did in the world. We're supposed to be different now. He says, and some, someone turns him back. So James declares the believers have a mutual accountability and responsibility to one another. What binds us together is Christ and his love. The accountability to each other is based on being in Christ. That's the common denominator for every believer. The word someone is the same word in the Greek as anyone. Someone means someone in the church. Someone who sees these individuals walking away from Christ, strain. And now they're no longer walking. I would bet that every one of us know at least one or two or three people like that right now. Some serve the Lord tremendously, fervently and faithfully and now they're in the world. Now there's always a possibility that some of these were not born again, but not all of them. Not all of them. There is no elite authority for the few to confront a brother. In other words, it's not just to the church leaders, it's to everybody. To you as a Christian, to elders, to deacons, to bishops, to pastors, to anybody. If we love those in Christ. The responsibility to each other is based on our witness to the world. Because the world is looking. How we treat our own. We're representing Christ. We're his ambassadors. We're to be light and salt of the world. They're watching. 
Listen to Galatians 6, 1 through 3. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Then notice James declared that believers are to have mutual family affection for one another. Then the believers to seek out the believer to turn him back from the world to the Lord. What is the motivation to be? Agape love. For God so loved the world that he sent the son for us. He crucified him for us. He made him sin for us who knew no sin. The fact that one has turned away from the truth should bother every believer tremendously. As if a family, a brother would get into drugs or, you know, get into the wrong crowd. The whole family should be concerned, right? It's the same thing in the church. The phrase, turns them back, means to cause one to return. Simple. The the preventatives to avoid... Arriving at this situation has been stated in James 1.22, continuing to be a doer of the word. It's not just enough to make a decision. We have to continue to be doers of the word of God. We have to confess our sins to stay right with the Lord ongoing, to keep our relationship right with God. We're to confess to one another when we fall short and say, listen, I'm sorry, forgive me. What I did, what I said was wrong. Please forgive me. And then there's to be forgiveness and there's no accounts. Sin forgiveness, sin buried. It's like it never happened. This is not speaking of evangelism for the sinner. But the context is restoring a believer. Now, if you're a non-believer, then God is here to minister to your heart, your need of Him. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin will damn you to hell. Now, you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. But God is not going to force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. Christ made the way. As he became sin for you, who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians 5.21. One name, one way, one mediator. Message is very clear, very simple to me. Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. John 15, 6. He's not talking about branches. He's talking about individuals. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple indeed. John 8, 31. If you continue in the faith, Colossians 1, 23. It's ongoing. Paul illustrates this clearly through Israel. Listen to Romans 11.22. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, meaning the Jew, severity. But towards you, the Gentile, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. You don't need Greek. You can understand that. Simple. Those abiding in Christ have the privilege and great responsibility 
and accountability. That's why Hebrews 10, 24 to 31 says that, um, um, he says that let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see that they approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, anyone, who has rejected Moses' law, died without mercy on the testimony of two to three witnesses. That's the Old Testament. He says, of how much worse, from the lesser to the greater, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be, he, will he be thought of worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Christian, not non-believers, His people. It is a fearful thing to fall to the hands of the living God. How can you apply those things to non-believers? You can't. The warning of blotting out a name out of the book of life is not an empty threat. But a real one. Do not allow anyone to take away the severity of that warning. It is possible. Listen to Revelation 3, 5. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Now, this is what's called a litotis. In other words, an expression in the negative to affirm the positive to the overcomer that his name will not be blotted out. But it doesn't mean that there's no potential for your name to be blotted out. It's written all over. Exodus 32, 32, Psalm 69, 28, Isaiah 4, 4, Daniel 12, 1, Luke 10, 20, Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 13, 18, 17, 8, 20, 12. All over. Now, if I only had one of them, that's all I need. I got all kinds. Do you think God's trying to just you psychology on us? How many of you as parents warn your little son or daughter to not play out in the street because there's no chance of them being run over? You give the warning because you know there's a possibility they could get killed. Not because there isn't. When God warns you and me, it's not false, it's not hypothetical, it's not, it's not going to happen. Impossible. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Before a name can be removed. It must be written in the book. You can't erase something that's not there. <laughs> Simple. The responsibility of a believer to seek sheep that are strained is critical. This is what he ends his book with. Notice lastly the perceptibility of the believer having turned back the believer 
to the way. James wants the individual to understand what he has done. Notice in verse 20, James wanted the loving brother to know the long-term benefit to the person turned back to Christ. It dealt with eternity. This is what we accomplish through the grace of God. When we pray, when we seek out, and we, we, we plead with the individual to repent and come back. We're dealing with eternal things. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. He wanted the believer who lovingly sought out the brother or sister and recovered them to have true comprehension of what took place. The word know simply means to perceive and understand. It's found two other times in James in one three and in 2.20. This is an imperative command, present active. The believer who sought out and restored the wayward believer. He's to understand. The understanding to be perceived clearly is that they had been used by God to bring back from the world this believer who strayed back to the world. The word turn is the same word as in verse 19, but a different form. Once again, the reference is to a sinner turning away from the air of his way. Turning him back to Christ, away from the pathway and the road away from God. This is one who literally has known Christ. The air is ek plano, literally out of his wanderings. So in other words, we're to stay on the straight and narrow. We're to keep our eyes on Christ. We're to keep our accounts short. We're to keep our relationship open with the Lord and then the horizontal plane with each other will work out. But notice also he wanted the believer who lovingly sought out the brother or sister and recovered them to have a true comprehension of the eternal results. They will save a soul from death, he says. The source of this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel thirty three eleven says, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? In principle, that's everybody else. Notice the reference is to death. It means eternal death. Not physical death. We're all going to die. None of us can escape physical death. The context is not physical death, it's spiritual death. And the context is one who has strayed after having come to Christ. It appears two times in James. In chapter 1, verse 15, first for spiritual interrupted fellowship. It says, then, when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And then in chapter 5, verse 20, the second spiritual death, separation from God for all eternity. One for fellowship, the other one for eternity. He's addressing believers on both of them, not unbelievers. The soul, as you know, the suki, it's comprised of the intellect, the emotion, and the will. 
The real you and the real me is spirit. My body is just material. My soul, my intellect, my emotion, my will. My spirit is the real me. When I shed this body and they put my body in the ground of the Lord tarries, my spirit will be present with the Lord instantly. And my body will be raised when he comes for the church in the rapture. The future indicative here refers to when they are completely altogether saved. When is that? At death or the rapture? Because we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 1.18 and Hebrews 9.28. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. As long as I'm here, I'm under construction. <laughs> I haven't arrived yet. To interpret death as physical is dishonest exposition to this context. Impossible. Now Calvinists will interpret this this way because of their slavery to the TULIP acronym. Telling you that God decreed a few to be elected for salvation... And you have no choice about it. You're going to be in heaven whether you like it or not. And then the remainder of humanity got elected for damnation. I never find that in the Bible. Ever. God who is a God of love, mercy, chooses only a few to go to heaven by decree. And then damns the remainder when all of them deserve hell? How could he be holy? How could he be just? How could he be good? He couldn't. It's an insult to the attributes of God. To the nature of God. You get to choose where you spend eternity. Not God. He's done everything. You have to make a decision. I notice James declares that the short-term benefit to the person turned back to Christ dealt with community and covers a multitude of sins. He will remove the obstacle between God and the sinner, sin. Because he acknowledges his sin, he confesses and he abandons his sin. The quote is from Proverbs um, 10, 12. It's also quoted in 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. So, uh, covers means to, to hide or to veil. Um... The extent of sin is a multitude. Notice that. A great number. All of them, whatever they may be. So the repentant sinner is reconciled to God in fellowship, again trusting God and walking with God. And the word covers is indicative future active here. Literally, shall cover. In other words, the same benefit to forgive sins as God forgives that. I who come alongside to encourage them to turn, I don't go spreading this sin all around. I bury it. If I go by one to him, him and I only know about it. If he repents, God knows, he knows, I know. It's easy to find out who has a big mouth and it's not going to be God. And if I go by two, it's easy to find out who has a big mouth. If I go by three, it's easy to find a big mouth, right? That's why Matthew 18 is in the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, to keep the house clean. If we do it biblically, Love covers a multitude of sins. 
Your parents know all the junk you do and everything else, and they on Christmas, they don't get the family together. Hey, guess what Johnny did? Look, you, they cover you, right? How much more God? How much more you and I? If we're to be like our master. He will refuse to make known the sins. No gossiping. No slandering. No glorying. No accusing. No pointing fingers when there's genuine repentance, right? Change your heart with the change of mind. You turn about face 180 degrees. The believer is to be like his master, like his Lord. As if it never existed. Cast as far as east as the west. Buried in the deepest ocean. That is difficult for us. Let me rephrase that. It's impossible for us. The only way I can do that is continually trust God. And ask Him to help me. Because I as a sinful man. Love vengeance. Maybe you're a little better than I am. But I love vengeance. And the sinful man. So I have to ask God to help my miserable heart. It's the only way I can do it. You know, doctors make an earthly difference. Even though they don't know everything. It's kind of nice to have a doctor around when you need one. But um, Christians make an eternal difference. A doctor heals you, sews you up, operates on you. Live another 40, 50 years, then you die. But when you restore a believer or you preach the gospel to a non-believer and they repent, you affect his eternity. That's amazing. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? So I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you're meddling with sin. or Maybe you've gone back in the world. Then you need to repent and get right with God. Do you know the Lord's coming? <laughs> I'm surprised He hasn't come. As I look at the world. As I see our nation decaying. As I see the world scenario where everybody's against Israel. As I see Russia posturing ready for Ezekiel 38 and 39 to attack Israel. As I see Iran getting ready to wipe out the Jews, which they will be part of the confederacy with Russia. It's very clear. And I see the attack against Christianity of all places, the United States. See, tonight you can worship, you can propagate, you can declare anything you want. You can say that you worship a rock and people will hail you. Oh, man, what a wise guy. Boy, smart. But you tell them you worship Jesus Christ. And they'll go postal. Tell them you're Muslim. They'll fear you. Tell them you're Christian. They'll attack you. Welcome to America. I think Jesus is real close. (laughs) But that's where the church has always lived. 
Only America has not lived there. But for 2,000 years, the church has been under suffering. But suffering never hurt the church. It only purifies it. Because it's not going to be so favorable to go to church anymore with the Bible. To stand for Jesus. Those of you who are young who um, are going to college, you know that the first um, two weeks, classrooms were packed out. People were trying to audit and all this and that. But then after they get the syllabus and the course outline, there's great attrition. When things get down heavy, where are you going to be? You're going to stand for Jesus? Or are you going to fold? What an incredible warning James gives. First, let's be compassionate and restore those who God would bring to our hearts and mind who have gone back to the world. Second of all, if you're here tonight and you know Jesus Christ, God has brought you to be saved, to repent of your sins. Because if you don't, if you die, you will be lost eternally. I don't tell you that. Jesus tells you that. You can change the course of your life. If you believe what Jesus said about you, that you're a sinner and you agree with God. And that he was your sin bearer. And that he paid the price for all of your sins. And that if you call upon his name, he will forgive you and make you a new creature. And give to you eternal life. These are his promises, not mine. So you come as you are by faith through grace. Knowing that you deserve nothing except hell. Just as I did. And everyone else who ever repented. And no one can glory. All they can do is praise the Lord. And give him all the glory. And so I hope that if you're here tonight. If you don't know him. That you would open your heart to him. You've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. Father thank you for your grace and your goodness. We pray you would deal with our hearts and we thank you for just everyone here, Lord. And Father, we do pray for those that uh, have walked with you and now they're not walking. We pray that you bring them to our hearts and minds that we might begin by prayer and then by seeking them out as you direct and guide us. And Lord, for those that are here that don't know you, that Lord, you would uh, allow them to understand your grace and love and their desperate need of you, Lord, to be forgiven. As you're praying, if, um, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to repent of your sins, Jesus is here to meet your need. You might be in the balcony, you might be on the floor, maybe the internet. The prayer of repentance means that you agree with what I've just told you. And that you call on his name to forgive you of your sins. And that he will do exactly that. But you have to make that confession. You have to ask him to do that. No one can do it for you. And so, let's stand. And as we worship, whether you're in the balcony or the floor, I want to ask you, to get out of your seat, come forward if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your decision. There should be no pressure, no nothing. 
If the Holy Spirit has convicted you and allowed you to see your need of Christ and salvation, then don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. You get to choose right now where you will spend eternity. Let's worship Him. With a grateful heart Give thanks To the Holy One Give thanks Because He's given Jesus Christ His Son Give thanks With a grateful Brother, to my right, you're left by that door. They will take you to the sinner's prayer where you ask Christ to forgive you, that you want to accept Him as Lord and Savior. But don't leave here the same way you came in, man. Tomorrow's promise to nobody. Nobody at all. I was 19 years old driving down Badillo in 1969 on my chopper. And this lady turns in front of me and left turns me. I was in a coma for 12 days. If I would have died, I would have gone to hell. I was a non-believer. Tomorrow's promise to no one. One day at a time, God gives us. Don't put it off. If you want to accept the Lord, afterwards just go there. What we're going to do now is we're going to go into the fellowship over there at the gym. And uh, there's food there. There's drinks. And uh, thank you for coming. And if you need questions or you need prayer, we'll be up here. I'll hang out here and uh, we'll pray for you. But thank you for coming tonight. And again, if you want to accept the Lord, go right over there. God bless you. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Good night.